Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. It is Friday. Today, we have our last interview of our interview week. Today, we have an interview that fool Allison Southwick did with Megan McArdle, an outspoken journalist for Bloomberg who covers economics and finance. She's also the author of the book, The Upside of Down, While Failing Well is the Key to Success. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Particularly excited to have you here to talk about this for specifically with investing. Um, Peter Lynch, who is a very famous investor, said that to be good in this business, you are right six times out of ten, which can be kind of discouraging, but at the same time also very encouraging because if Peter Lynch said you're, if you're just right a little bit more than half the time, you're doing pretty well. And so that's why it's wonderful to have you here to talk about the benefits of failing. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, uh, when you go to sort of high school English class, which is the first thing they tell you, write what you know. And uh, I know a lot about failing. I have failed a lot. I have failed spectacularly. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not joking. I mean, the reason I'm a journalist is that I failed to become a management consultant. Uh, I had a job. I graduated from, I graduated from business school in 2001. And I had, before I went to business school, I was a tech consultant, so naturally I wanted to go into tech management consulting, despite the fact that I had actually, in my summer, my abortive summer as an investment banking associate, um, I had actually watched the NASDAQ crash from the lobby of Merrill Lynch's orientation. Um, and I spent the summer doing nothing because there was, funnily enough, in tech banking, not really a whole lot going on in the summer of 2000. And so naturally, I decided to turn my focus to tech management consulting, which resulted in my getting laid off before I ever worked for the company that hired me, uh, along with the rest of my associate class. Um, and I actually went through this two-year period of despair um, where I lived with my parents and tried to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And one of the things that I did uh, through a series of remarkable coincidences was I ended up working down at the World Trade Center disaster recovery site for a year. And while I was there, I started a blog. And I, because blogging was actually something like no one, it's not something your grandmother does. It was actually like something no one had done before. And I started putting my business school curriculum up on this blog and explaining like what various accounting terms meant. And there were all the accounting scandals in the news if, if any of you are old enough to remember back to 2001, which increasingly seems to be not the case when I give talks. Um, <laughs> but I, and I got really excited about writing about economics and public policy. And it actually turned out uh, in 2003, I got a job with The Economist and it was like the best thing that ever happened to me. It was also a financial disaster because it paid $40,000 a year, which was like a third of what I'd been expecting to make as a management consultant. Uh, and I had a thousand, and because I'd been expecting to make all this money as a management consultant, and I had $1,000 a month in student loan payments. So I spent a long time living on ramen and cheese doodle surprise, where the surprise is that you're, you're 30 and you're still eating ramen and cheese doodles for dinner. Um, and what I realized, though, was that I had, had I not had those kind of two soul-crushing years of trying to figure out what I was going to be when I grew up, and it was really bad. Like, I'm not saying failure is, is just like, yay, I failed. Um, it's not. It sucks, right? If failure didn't suck, we wouldn't stop doing whatever it is that isn't a good idea. Because uh, failure is basically nature's way of saying, no, that doesn't work. Try something else. Um, and what I realized was that had I not had that two years, towards the end of which I actually, a guy that I went to business school with, walked up to me and said, how are you doing, Megan? I didn't know him very well. I don't even remember his name now. All I remember is that I looked at him and I said, I am perilously close to despair. And he, he did what any of you would do, which is he like looked at me for a while and he had nothing, no idea what to say. It was just this kind of 
wow, how do I follow that? And then he just kind of sidled away. <laughs> I think he was afraid to turn his back on me. Um, but had I not had all of that, I wouldn't have dared to accept this job, not because it wasn't my dream job. It was my dream job. I've had an amazing, you know, now uh, 11 years in journalism, but because the financial risk was so large. And so, it, you know, it really can be true that freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, is that when something is taken away from you, that's, it is a loss and it is painful, but there's also other things that you can now do that you wouldn't have dared to do if you hadn't failed. And it's also true that failing is how we learn. I mean, literally how we learn. You think about how you learn to play tennis, right? Is you, you don't go out and develop an elaborate theory of tennis ball physics. If that worked, then Wimbledon every year would be like won by guys from MIT, which is not actually the case. <laughs> um, instead, you actually just go out and try, and you are terrible. Does any, did anyone play tennis as a child? Or like whatever, I remember, you remember how terrible you were, and you would hit the ball, and you'd be like, why is it back there? Um, I mean, I did that a lot, because I'm a really untalented athlete. Um, but eventually, by accident, you hit it the right way, and then you do that a few thousand more times, and you've kind of accidentally figured out how to hit a tennis ball. And that's really actually how most of the universe works, is that we think that it's all about studying and planning, and like we're not good at learning from other people. What we're good at learning from is our own mistakes. And so ultimately, you know, the power of failure is the power of market economies, it's the power of evolution. It's, it's, it's like the most powerful force in the universe, but we hate it, and so we try to avoid it and, and build it out of our portfolios. But as the financial crisis showed, I think, the point at which you think you have found a way, you found a safe strategy that doesn't involve you know, taking any losses or taking any risks is actually the most dangerous spot you're in because you have not prepared for the fact that failure is just an inevitable part of a, a well-lived, innovative, risk-taking life. Um, and you know that movie where they, go, they always get like, failure is not an option. Like failure is always an option and that's okay. Uh, you just have to make it not a catastrophic option. You have to make it kind of a reasonable part of your life rather than like this terrifying thing that you try to thrust away until it comes back and is like, I'm here. Uh, so that was ultimately why I wrote the book. And uh, it was it was a great experience. So because this is a women in investing event, I inevitably am going to mention my daughter because I do. And in thinking about failure, I was thinking about, well, when my daughter learned to walk, she didn't just make a first effort and then be like, oh, you know what, maybe this lolling about thing is really <laughs> all, like, this is more my style. I don't need to learn how this walk thing goes. So as children, like, she's just constantly learning, spoons in her eye, food everywhere, whatever, but she's still failing and learning. At, at what point, at what age, are, do we suddenly get scared of failure and we start running away from it, sweeping it under the rug, not acknowledging it, running away from it? Well, I mean, I think it's a continual process. Like, you remember when you were immortal? I certainly remember that period, and I miss it. Really. The 20s. <laughs> my so 20s great. were so awesome. Now I, like, can't lift my left le arm all the way over my head anymore. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but I can't do yoga. Yoga is for things that, like, for people who, like, can't do real sports. I can't even do yoga. Um, <laughs> sorry for any yoga people. I aspire to be like you if you do yoga. So, um, but, you know, we, I think we're increasingly taking it away from kids. Is that, like, I think about the jungle gyms when I was a kid, and I grew up in Manhattan in the 70s and early 80s. And the jungle gyms were literally, like, nine feet tall, and they were metal, and then underneath them there was some concrete. <laughs> and um, that was, it was great though, right? Like I still remember you would get up, you get halfway and you would look at your parents, you'd be like, this is a bad idea and you would get down, but eventually you get to the top of that jungle gym and it was like the best feeling on the planet. Um, and we took that away from kids. We took the jungle gyms down, we lowered them to be about three feet high and now they're platforms that the kids fall off of. So right, they can't fall, they also can't climb. 
Like you go to Central Park, you go to Riverside Park where I grew up, there are no kids in the trees because their parents won't let them. And this is, you think about what happens in school. I gave a talk about my book and a 15 year old girl came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, I understand that failure is really important, but here's the thing, I'm in an inter international baccalaureate program, only 5% of my programs are gonna, gonna get a, a 4.0 and I just can't afford to take a class, I'm not gonna get an A in. And I was like, America, we are doing it wrong. Really? You're, you're 15 and you can't risk failure? Like at what point is it gonna be okay to take some risks when you're like splashing out on your assisted living facility? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is totally insane that we have gotten to the point where 15 year old kids feel like they actually cannot afford to risk anything that they will not be perfect at immediately. Uh, because that is the time when they have, when they should, they're still at home, there's no mortgage riding on this. This is the time when they should be most free to experiment, most free to do things. But we're so afraid for our kids. We're so afraid that like, they'll get kidnapped, that they're, they'll, they'll get a skull fracture. And like these things happen. But when I talk to my friends who have kids, you would think that the attrition rate in my generation was like 30, 40%, right? And in fact, like all of my friends from childhood are still alive. Um, <laughs> And the, like, in fact, these things were very rare events that happened incredibly rarely. I walked to school past housing projects when I was nine years old, and that was normal in New York in the 70s. We're all still here. And now my friends who have 13-year-old kids are afraid to drive, not to drive them to school because God knows what sort of predators are waiting out there. I mean, there were actual predators when we were growing up. Um, <laughs> now, like, they're in a nice leafy suburb where the predators are not there, but we're, we're terrified of letting our kids take any risks at all. And as a result, they lead these incredibly scheduled lives, these incredibly programmed lives. They're not having the ability to go out, try stuff, and find out that, like, they're not good at stuff, that they, that, Maybe they screw up because they didn't work hard enough, like I did, <laughs> right? That we like, we're trying to manage all of that out of our kids' lives, but you're not producing kids who then have what the actual most important thing. Any manager will tell you, tons of psychologists, the most important thing is the ability to take risks and to recover from them, and that's the one thing that we are depriving kids of because we are, we are creating these bubbles where it's entirely impossible to fail, but then also entirely impossible to really just succeed and splash out in your own direction. And um, in reading your book, uh, you touched on the same point that was also David Gardner's advice to me when I had my child. He said, he said, okay, here's my piece of advice. Praise the effort, yes, not the outcome. And literally every time he, he sees me and he asks me, how's your child doing? He's like, okay, here's my one piece of advice. <laughs> praise the effort, not the outcome. And we, we, we will praise, we'll be like, good effort. And if we ever accidentally praise her for the outcome, we'll be like, I mean, way to try hard. And so she's gonna be totally confused. But, um, and, you, and you talk about that in your book as well, about, about how we often are like, well, if I'm not good at this from the beginning, yeah, like, oh, then I, then I shouldn't even bother. Well, and you know, it's not just kids. I mean, this is really important to do for kids. It's also really important to do for yourself is to actually like, like writing a book for me is one of the hardest things I've ever done. I didn't know how to do it. Um, I'd never done it before. And so it's scary. Like you go out and you start something new and you have false starts and you're not sure how the whole process works. Um, and the good thing was that I happened to be researching a book on failure, so I was actually able to tell myself, no, this is normal. <laughs> um, and also because I had gone through this at various stages of my career of, of thinking, you know, if like you're pretty good at writing when you're in high school, you get to think that like you're, it's all supposed to be that easy, right? It's all supposed to be as easy as it was when you were in 10th grade and you were the best writer in your class. But like now everyone that I'm competing with was the best writer in their class and the best writer in their college and the best writer, like, um, and so you have to be able to say to yourself, like, look, part of the process of learning is gonna be that I'm gonna screw it up and I'm gonna have to start over. As one really good writer once told me, um, 
you can rewrite garbage, you cannot rewrite nothing. So the most important thing is give yourself permission to suck and just get it on the page. And that's, it's, we have to do that for our kids, is to instead of say, oh, you're so pretty, you're so smart, you're so talented, whatever, is to say, wow, you really worked hard. Um, but you also have to do it to yourself, is understand that when you're doing something, um, that the important thing is not that you got the right outcome, it's that you had the right process, which is like, I took a risk, I was willing to do something I'd never done before, I mitigated the downsides. I did not go out and decide to like put the the mortgage payment down on red and see how that worked out. Um, but I did like I, I I took a calculated risk, and if it didn't work out, that doesn't mean I did the wrong thing. It meant that I was doing something I'd never done before, which meant it maybe something no one had ever done before, which meant that the only way I was going to find out whether I was, I could do this was to try it. And now I know more. Um, it's really hard to do, right? This right. is like the hardest thing <laughs> is just to say to yourself, I'm not gonna focus so much on outcomes, I'm gonna focus on like, did I, did I actually try? Because that really ultimately is, the biggest success is did you try enough, right? You can't, you can't pick what talents you're born with, you can definitely pick how hard you try. And you talk in the book about um, a fixed versus growth personality yeah. or mindset, um, and you talked about how you went from the the fix to the growth. So how how did you maybe explain the differences there? But then also explain like how did you did you physically just say it's okay to fail? Um, I'm still I'm still moving. Uh, so there's a great book by Carol Dweck, psychologist. I highly recommend it to all of you. But what she says is like she was she was giving tests to kids and seeing how they did on them, and they were hard tests. And what she was looking at was some one group of kids, they would be given a hard test and they would be given the opportunity to take another test, a harder or an easier one. And a, and a lot of the kids would think out and be like, no, I wanna take the easier one, right? Um, but a small group would take the harder one and then they would learn more and they would get better and they would improve a lot faster than the other group. And she was trying to figure out what's the difference between these two people. And so finally she had this eureka moment where she says, oh, Okay, so what I'm seeing in the data here is that the people who are trying the harder tests, they're people who have what she calls a growth mindset. Um, fixed mindset people, they think that a test is like a dipstick. It's measuring the fixed amount of talent that you have. Your, your talent, like you were born with it, it's who you are. Um, the growth people think that talent is a quantity that you increase by trying challenges. And those are the people who do better because they try more challenges and they do more, they recover better, they learn more from the challenges that they do do instead of just being like, well, I guess I suck at math or whatever. They're like, wow, I guess I don't know how to do that. I, I should figure that out. Um, and it's not that like there's no such thing as talent, right? That's ridiculous. And I, I say, you know, I'm six foot two, as some of you may have noticed when I walked up on stage. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be a gymnast. <laughs> and the gym was like, no, you're not gonna be a gymnast. You should find something else. So naturally I picked, I, 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 I did, I went out and picked another, I decided I wanted to be a jockey. Um, <laughs> and the sad thing is like no one disabused me of this for the longest time. I was like 10 years old and almost done, I was, this t I was this tall when I was 11. So I was almost done growing when someone was like, Megan, you're 5'10", look at the jockeys, do you look like them? Um, but it was, so, you know, it's not that like, had I just tried harder, I could have been a jockey. That's not, you know, but at the things that I do do well, trying harder matters. And so it's, it's a combination of what you're born with and what you take. So how do you, the, the good news is that fixed versus growth mindset is not something you're born with. It is something you can change. And I said this to, I was interviewing her and I said, I've got to tell you, I've got a fixed mindset. I mean, I used to, when I started writing my column for The Atlantic, there was like this days long process of my like rolling around on the floor and telling my husband that I was the worst writer ever and I was gonna get fired and everything was terrible and I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, 
And I used to think I was unique, and then I found out everyone else, all the other columnists were doing it too, like complaining to their wives and going up down the stairs and cleaning the garage and whatever it was, not writing their columns. Um, and so I said to her, like, I've, I've, got this, I've got this thing. Like, every time I face a challenge, I think, well, I'm going to find out I don't have what it takes. And she said, oh, me too. I was so sure. This is the woman who, like, developed the whole concept. She said, I've changed. I've got it, you know. And she said, I knew that I had changed when I heard myself saying, wow, I suck at this. This is really fun. But she said it took a long time. And the funny thing is that I also changed in the process of writing this book. I became much more willing to just do stuff that I knew I, I didn't know how to do, I'd never done before, it was risky, it was scary, and all the rest of it. And it wasn't because like, I developed five simple steps to, to have a, a growth mindset. It was literally the process of reading the research and understanding the things that are true, which is that your brain is plastic, you do change it by taking on challenges, you do learn by doing things, by being smart about it, by analyzing what you've done and moving on after, after you've taken the lessons you can. Um, and by reading that research and knowing it was true, I was able to say to myself, yes, I know this feels like a total catastrophe and like you are the only person in the universe who has, ever, who has ever just not been able to perform at this level. But in fact, this is how every single person who achieved anything major managed to do it, was by overcoming that sense. And I think it's especially true of women. We are, the, we are our worst handicappers of, you know, there's this thing called imposter syndrome which is the belief that like you've been fooling everyone and that they're gonna unmask you at any moment as the total failure that you are and you'd better just like, you're gonna pedal as hard as you can to keep up the pretense, but eventually they're gonna find out. Um, and the odds, what are the odds that like all of your bosses in history and all of your coworkers didn't notice that you sucked at your job, right? They're really low. But women, like two thirds of, of successful women have imposter syndrome. Um, and it's, it's it's a super common thing where we're our own worst critics. Much, we're much harder on ourselves than men. Um, and so we have to be much more conscious about saying, no, right, like I deserve, I deserve to be here, I deserve a place at the table, and I earned this, and it's not because someone made a colossal mistake. Right, and I, it reminds me of, um, well, in Lean In, when Sheryl Sandberg, she wrote Lean In, and in it she talks about how when men fail, they tend to blame the circumstances around them. Yeah. Whereas when women, right, they're like, ah, the deck was stacked against me, that guy hates me, there's there no way I was going to win. Whereas women are more like, oh, what did I do wrong? Yeah. It was all my fault. And, um, and we, there's, we actually, there's actually a healthy way to channel that, which is that like, men can then not learn from the mistakes they make because they don't realize they made mistakes. But you have to channel that into like, okay, <laughs> I, maybe I made a mistake. Like, that didn't work. How do I make it not like, oh, wow, I guess I must not belong here. I should go mop floors, which I'm more qualified for, right? right. Is that you, you, like, there's a balance. And I think it, it's somewhere in between those two and strategies. That, yeah, and this is, gives me an excellent opportunity to segue into what awesome investors you women are as a result of this trait, because you're more likely to learn from your investing mistakes and you're less likely to have this hubris where you're going to invest in that hot biotech even though you know nothing about it, right? <laughs> where guys love that kind of stuff. And so, sorry guys, I know a few of you are in here, but learn. You're doomed. Turn, turn, to the turn to the lady next to you and just say, help me. Help me be better. Luckily, we still need you to run the grills, so. <laughs> I've got some furniture that needs moving. You'll be perfect for it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, some business leaders that you think maybe have embraced failure very well. We're very lucky that The Motley Fool Steve Kerr is on our board, and he worked with Jack Welch as their chief learning officer at GE and ran Crotonville. 
Um, and luckily, we got to hear him speak at our, our annual event here. We have Fool of Palooza's, our big annual retreat. And one of the things he said to me that stood out was, as a manager, and I may butcher this a little, so apologies, Steve Kerr, as if he's going to see this and be <laughs> mad at me. Take, please take me to task, Steve Kerr. I would love to have a longer conversation with you. Um, and he said that as a manager, you know, explaining to the people who report to you, you know what, I'm going to make at least three bad calls a week. And that's, you know what, that's, I'm admitting that you're going to make some mistakes and it's okay as people who report to me to like talk to me about it, you know, talk to me about my failures. Do you have any examples of business leaders or CEOs who you see as being better at failing than maybe others are? Yeah, so one of them is in my is in my book. Uh, it's a guy named Jeff Steibel. He's a turnaround artist. He's done a bunch of he's like mid market companies, and uh, he's in the middle of uh, he works for now Dun and Bradstreet Credibility Corporation, which is the original kind of Dun and Bradstreet operation, which they spun off and is now he he did a turnaround at like a eight hundred and eighty year old company, um, and when he's in the middle of this turnaround, he decides that what he needs is more people who are more willing to fail and take risks. So he and his wife and his assistant come in with a bottle of wine. They spend all night painting, taking a blank wall, painting kind of quotes about failure on it, and then writing their stories of failure on the wall. And they make everyone do it. They made me write my own story of failure. My story, my uh, my words of wisdom were, um, you know, if it if you graduate from business school and there seems to be a tech bubble collapsing, don't go into tech. Um, <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> words to live by. Uh, but, you know, it's... It, he also puts failure in his performance reviews as a positive. So he wants to see that you've had enough failures. Again, not bet the farm failures, not like we tried this huge product and it cost us a bunch of money and now that we're, we're perilously close to bankruptcy, but things where you tried something and you didn't know how it was gonna turn out. And he says, if you, if you don't have enough failures on your record, it means you weren't taking risks. And you were sitting in there and he says, you know, you, we can sit here all we want and perfect the product and like make it, but the problem is we're perfecting it for ourselves. We're not our customers. Right, and so we don't ultimately know what they want. We want is to push the product out and have the customers tell us what about it is working for them and what about it is not working and to be changing it quickly. So he wants to see those kinds of things and he does a really good job of making that central to the culture. That wall is right in the middle of the offices. And that I think is an amazing testament to the ability to say, okay, like again, don't go whole hog and put everything on red but go out there, be taking risks continually. This is part of who we are, it is core to who we are. It's really hard to do though. I mean, it's, it's, it's always easier to shoot the messenger or to, you know, it, when something goes wrong, there's a famous Russian painting of a, a family in a sled with some wolves coming by and they're just about to grab the servant and like throw him out to the back of the wolves. And that is our, our normal temptation when something goes wrong. Um, but to instead turn that around and harness it and say, no, this is, failing is part of who we are. Uh, it's part of the normal process, and that's how we get better, is is really remarkable. So uh, we're here to talk a, a bit about money, and lucky for us, you also talk about money a bit. Um, you wrote a recent article about debt and spending, and how it's kind of evolved, and why we're in debt, and how we're spending our money. Um, and you talk a bit about how people are kind of focusing on the wrong things, like focusing on the latte factor. Like yeah. that's one of those things where like, well, if you just stop buying a $5 latte every day, you you debunk that a bit. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not totally untrue, right? If you if if you stop buying a five dollar latte, that at the end of the month you'll have one hundred and fifty dollars a month. But when you see the the people who get themselves into deep trouble, it's ultimately not about the lattes. It's ultimately a, you almost always about one of three things: you spent too much on your education, you spent too much on your car, you spent too much on your house. Often all three of them, um, and 
why people do this is really interesting to me. And part of it is that we have unrealistic ideas about what our income is supposed to support. We look at our parents and we forget that our parents took like 50 years to get to the income that we think we're supposed to have at 30. Um, you know, like my parents bought a wreck in Manhattan and fixed it up for 20 years, but I don't remember when they were fixing it up when I was a toddler. I remember what it looked like when I graduated from high school. And so you start off with unrealistic expectations and then it's all ramped up by like television and movies where the people in television and movies have an income, like compared to the income that they're supposed to have, their consumption starts at probably 75 to 100% above what that person could actually afford. And it goes rapidly north from there. And you see it most in Manhattan where everyone has these amazing, enormous apartments. But it's, it's true all over, right? The houses are nicer, the cars are nicer, their jobs are more fun, everything is nicer than what they would actually have. Um, and so we get the idea that that's what we're supposed to have if, if we're at a, a given sort of, you know, social class, job level, um, and even when our income isn't supporting it, we think, well, no, this is what people have. This is the one thing I hear over and over again from people who are in trouble, is like, well, I just wanted the things that normal people have. Like, no, those aren't, you, you, it's not about what normal people have, it is about how much money is in your bank account, and then how much, like, what will it buy? It doesn't matter what normal people have if you don't have the money in your bank account. Um, but that's, it's really hard to do, right? And so instead, we use debt we, uh, we, to, to smooth our consumption, and it never quite smooths out. And I think you know, the other big mistake that people make, aside from committing to these huge fixed expenses, because those are the ones that get you into trouble, right? If you're blowing too much money on lattes every month, and you get laid off, you can stop buying coffee. If you have a $600 a month car payment, and you get laid off, like, you can't stop having the car, right? I mean, it's going to be a problem, but also they'll come and take it. They, they, and then you won't have any way to drive around, which is a problem in most of the country. Similarly with the house, is that you commit to big fixed expenses that are right up to where your income can support or beyond. Those are the things that are ultimately most likely to drive you into bankruptcy or serious financial trouble. Um, and the other thing that people do is that they do this, they don't think of things in terms of a budget, they think of each purchase individually. And so they don't make trade-offs, right? They're like, can I afford a pair of Jimmy Choo's? Yes, I can. I make $75,000 a year. I can afford to spend $400 on a pair of shoes. And you totally can, but you can't also then afford the vacation that you told yourself you can afford. And you can't also then afford to go to dinner with your girlfriends three nights a week. You can't, like, people, if you're looking at each purchase individually, you can afford all of them, but any of them, but you can't afford all of them. And that is one thing that you see over and over again. You see it in the government. You see it in colleges. You see it. Um, and all of these things collectively mean that we're not taking money and saving. Uh, we're not taking the money we want to invest. Instead, it's kind of trickling away on all of these things that we assumed we could afford because someone else told us we could. So uh, taking that from other people's financial mistakes, do you have any, any, any fails in your financial oh God. life that, oh, so that many. you want to so share So many. Let's start with from. my $1,000 a month in loan payments. Like I could have lived cheaper in grad school, but I knew I was going to make a six-figure salary when I got out, so why should I bother <laughs> to deprive myself? Um, turns out there are no guarantees. I mean, I went to a top five business school. That was supposed to be the closest thing you had to an income guarantee. It's not. Um, <laughs> you can end up going into journalism, which is not a lucrative career, although incredibly rewarding. Um, and you know the the oh yeah I mean I I, uh, I I let go of watching my money after I had a really hideous relationship breakup and I just sort of lost my my will to live for six months I was like wow what do I care oh. <laughs> I'll be living in a box somewhere it won't matter. <laughs> um, 
And you know, I've also done things like uh, I, I don't buy individual stocks. Bloomberg doesn't allow me to. But I had four individual stocks that I just did nothing with for years. And then the financial crisis hit, and they were all bank stocks. So of course, it was just destroyed. So I'd had all of this money, and I bought a car, and I took out a car loan instead of selling the stock. And had I just sold that stock and bought the car, I would have saved myself a great deal of money. So those kinds of things of like not being attentive. Of not of of taking out more debt. I've done it all. I mean, like I'm I wasn't kidding when I said I have experience with failure. I'm now very like we're debt my we're debt free except for the mortgage. Yay. We put money into savings every month, aggressive on the 401k and so forth. But it, you know, I, I stumbled there through a series of mistakes. I did not just arrive full blown from the head of Zeus <laughs> saying, aha. <laughs> I will match my yes. company's 401k. I mean, this is the thing, is like personal finance, we think it's about math, right? Like the math of personal finance is so easy that journalists can do it. The problem is not math. <laughs> the problem is that it's hard, right? Like I also like nice shoes and things. And that's the part that's difficult, not the part about like figuring out um, like what percentage of your salary you should put away or, or something that you like, you should put away 15 to 20% of your salary. So there, you know, but um, like, it, it, again, the math is not hard, right? We can all pretty much be like, what is one fifth? Um, but the, the, the hard part is disciplining yourself to do it and do it consistently and paying yourself first and making sure that like it comes before any of the other claims is saving first, because ultimately we're all going to face some rainstorms and, and we need an umbrella. All right, last piece of parting advice on failure for our audience here today. Um, I think the thing that I really wanted people to take away from the book more than anything else was uh, to be able to say to yourself, I'm not a failure of someone who's failed, which sounds kind of like motivational speaker or whatever, but actually, seriously, like everyone has failed. You look at any successful person from Theodore Roosevelt to Colonel Sanders, and you will find so to Abraham Lincoln, huge failure, serial failure. Um, like. The, the, and those things set them up for success. And you look at those people and you say they were failures, or no, they weren't, they failed. And when you fail, I'm not saying everyone's gonna be Abraham Lincoln, but that, 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 that the failure does not define you. You will not know how it's gonna turn out until you are in the grave. Short of that, like there is always a chance. And the most important thing is to say, okay, that happened, and now what do I take out of it? And, and, and how do I move on? Because this is not about me, this is about the fact that the universe is an uncertain place. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. That is our show for today and for the week. I hope you enjoyed our week of interviews with CEOs, investors, and thought leaders on where the money is. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>